Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorian McKenna. Today, we're thrilled to be welcoming Adam Grant onto the show. Adam is an organizational psychologist and writer whose work focuses on the science of motivation, generosity, rethinking, and potential. He is the author of five New York Times bestselling books, including his newest book, Hidden Potential, which we'll be talking about today. Adam's new book focuses on developing a better understanding of ourselves so that we can unlock our own hidden potential to succeed at our highest level possible. All right, so welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks, Meg. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Adam has agreed that before we launch into our conversation with him, we're going to talk about our weeks or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting. Uh, Lorian, how was your week? Uh, it was uh, ups and downs, like always, right? A lovely roller coaster. Um, in terms of my writing, uh, it's going well. I have a couple projects and I have deadlines and pages due and working with great people. In terms of being a writer, I'm really noticing how much my belief systems, either true or not, uh, help me or get in my way. And so what I'm trying to do this week is really notice when those things get in my way, when those stories pop up and just notice them. I'm not trying to fix it. Like I can't fix it today or uh, change it today or, or this week, but I can notice it. And what that helps me do is uh, calm down so that I can stop that narrative from getting in my way so that I actually stop writing. So like I have a, I have pages due this afternoon um, and the belief system is, belief system is all convoluted. I can't do it. I won't be able to finish. What if it sucks? All this stuff. So I'm trying to just stop and like, wow, that's interesting. I'm noticing that I'm having a lot of this, like, I don't know what they are, uh, intrusive thoughts or, and then the noticing helps me take a breath in my brain and then I can keep going. Uh, but it's helping me not be reactive in a way that that will get in my way. So it's not, it's like a whole train of like the belief system, getting the train of it, and then it derails me. So, and like I said, I can't fix it today. <laughs> I'm not gonna make those thoughts go away, but I can just notice. So that's really what I'm trying to focus on. So that's my week. That also helps me sleep better, be more present for my family, right? Because I'm not stuck in that weird belief system crank. Um, anyway, so that was awesome. my week. How was your week, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good. Actually, you know, it's funny. Um, this conversation was on my mind. So we went to see the Captain Marvel sequel. And um, our girls are huge fans of the original. Credit Meg. Uh, and in order to prepare Thank for the you. sequel, our, our son uh, wanted to watch the original. And we watched it. And he finished it and said, that's my favorite superhero movie. Yes. Aww, that's awesome. And then at the theater, we caught wind of Inside Out 2 happening. So you're just you're just all over. I'm all over. I'm all you're over. You're everywhere. It's a good teaser. Um, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more about it myself. Uh, but I guess you're in charge here. Uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. Um I think I failed this week at following one of my core personal policies, which is to always block out at least one weekday with nothing on my calendar. And it just didn't happen. And my, my, my commitment is when I have a week where I fail to do that, I then will add extra days in an upcoming week. And so now I have to look ahead and figure out what are, what, what are a couple of days in, a, you know, in another week this month where I can cancel meetings, basically. Okay, let, wait, we have to talk about this because my brain is exploding. So what do you do on that day? <laughs> I 
Is it set? Why are you setting it aside? What is, I know that you're going to have a very insightful idea of why you set that day aside. It depends a little bit on the day, but it's time for writing usually. Um, I also use it for, you know, thinking, learning, rethinking, unlearning. Uh, it's a day when I have an excuse to read, um, to talk to people who I think might have interesting ideas. Um, sometimes I use the day to, you know, to analyze data if I'm working on a study. Um, but it's basically, I, I like the distinction that that Paul Paul Graham of Y Combinator made between maker days and manager days. And like, we're all makers, right? We we create for a living. And right. yet our days look much more like manager days where we're we're having meetings and doing administrative work. And I thought that was out of balance. I said, okay, ideally I have at least two days that are unscheduled every week, maybe in a good week, three or four of those days. And I just stack all my meetings into one day. And that that's not always realistic, but I usually can protect one or two. That's amazing. I'm just trying to do that on Sunday. <laughs> I forget about during my during the five days. No, this is my secret dream for the the four day work week. Part of the reason I want to go to it is then I'll work five instead of other people working five and me working six. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I love that. My week. Uh, I this is is about writing, even though it's not going to start there. Which is, I went to a dance class which I haven't been to a dance class in probably 20 years. So it was basically true beginner, beginner. Like I just went back all the way back to being a beginner. Plus I'm older and crickety and rickety and I can't do any of the stuff that I used to do. So I have all this body brain ideas of what I can do, which I can't do any of it. So it was truly, truly a um, an ego hit. And yet I stayed, which became my goal. Just stay in this class in the back. Right. And the teacher knew and they were all clapping because myself and my, my friend Annie, who went, we hadn't been in a class in so long. So they were very supportive. It wasn't about anybody else. It was about my own expectation and 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 ego. And but eventually, because I stayed, it became about it did become fun, not fun in the way that I maybe wanted to in my imagination. But there was fun to be had and in learning and getting my body back and all the things, all the original reasons I went there. Um, which it does speak to my writing because I'm also writing a new genre that I've never written before. So it's a beginner situation for me in some ways. Um, and it is feeling overwhelming and it is starting to hit my ego, um, especially as I wait for notes. So it's, I'm, I guess my brain was trying to find something to remind me that there could be fun, even though this is feeling very overwhelming and hard and too beginnery for my brain. So it was just it was a great way to remind myself that if I can just hang in and stay with it, I not only will it be fun, but I'll learn new things and I'll grow and expand, which I did think spoke a little bit to what you talk about in your wonderful book about potential, because in essence, I was trying to find potential within what I'm doing uh, specifically. Um, so I just thought that would be, uh, you know, it's it's happening. I think my brain from reading your book decided to go do this. Uh, I, I didn't put it together until after the class, but I intuitively from listening to your book on my walks, I think it's so great. I just want to say to all of our listeners, honestly, just go get this book because it is so inspiring, so mind-blowing, so about writing, even though it's not about writing, but it is about writing because like you said, it's about making. We will not be able to go through the whole book today. There is no way we won't have time. So good. I didn't we, want to anyway. I, like, I, I know, I but I do. 
I want to go through the whole book. <laughs> Lauren was joking. We should just take one episode and go through one each chapter. That's how much we love this book. Wow, that's a huge honor. I loved I loved your other books. I loved Think Again, which we won't be able to get to today. So we won't be able to get to a lot of stuff today. But um, what we get to, I know is going to be great. So let's just jump in while we have you here, Adam. Well, before you do that, I want to say, first of all, you shouldn't be, I mean, this is not scripted, right? So you shouldn't feel like you have to attach to a script or cover any (laughs) one book or topic. Two, um, I'm really intrigued by, Meg, you used a phrase, you said it started to hit your ego. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Tell me more. Well, it's funny. I, in the dance class, he, the teacher looked over at me and he goes, breathe. You know, be in your body. You're not you're not dancing because you're holding your breath. And I'm holding my breath because I'm starting to tense up that it's not going the way I want it to go. I into I know intellectually I'm not going to be able to do three quarters of this stuff because I'm an adult. I understand. It's been 20 years, but it doesn't matter. Some part of me is feeling I'm I'm not measuring up. Um, people are looking at me, they're feeling sorry for me. I didn't used to be this way. I used to be able to do all this stuff. And also the there was a little bit of mourning and loss in it because I want to do it and I can't. Um, but I think that's about out of creative act, be that with your body or dancing or you were a diver. I love the stories about you as a diver in the book. Um, long retired. That's how it felt. I know, long retired. But that's how it felt. It felt like um, when I say ego, that what my ex, because maybe it was more about expectation or what I wanted it to be versus what it is. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it, it makes me think about when when psychologists talk about like ego, so much of it is attaching your sense of worth to an activity. Like, well, right. why, why should your self-esteem hinge on how well you can dance? Like, that's, a, that's an arbitrary why? made up source of of self-confidence. But <laughs> at some point you decided this was central or at least it reflected on who you are and your value. And it's really hard to detach from that, isn't it? Well, especially because I danced when I was young, like in my 20s, I was literally a dancer. So it's hard to not have that identity anymore. Well, and let's talk about, you know, I, what I, my, the favorite thing I love about the book, and then I'm going to be quiet and let Lauren ask her questions too, is... um to seek discomfort. I felt like that's what I was doing in a way. I was seeking discomfort. I knew it was going to not be fun and yet be fun. Um, talk to us a little bit about seeking discomfort as a way to find your potential. Well, I think I, I really underappreciated this until I wrote the book. And actually, when I discovered it, um, I, I created a little hidden potential quiz so that you could identify a strength and an area for growth based on the framework of the book. And as as you always do as a psychologist, when you write an assessment, you take it yourself. And I took it and I scored highest on discomfort seeking. I was like, oh, apparently I'm a glutton for punishment. This is good to know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it has been a theme throughout my life. Um, you know, I, I failed a writing test and became a writer. <laughs> I was you know, freaked out about public speaking and terrible at it. And I became a professor and keynote speaker. And I've been on the TED stages more time than I more times than I ever expected. Um, I was terrible at diving. I couldn't dance, by the way. Still can't. Um, avoided that <laughs> one. But uh, my teammates called me Frankenstein as a diver because I was so inflexible. And I made that my sport. Um, so I guess I've been embracing discomfort for a long time, and I never really thought about it as a skill, but it is. So 
Um, I love I love the research on this. So let's just do a quick example from Willie and Fishbox. So they do this experiment where they have people do improv comedy. Uh, you're going to show up at an improv comedy workshop. And I thought the best way to get people to learn that skill is to give them the goal to learn. <laughs> like, how do you grow? You focus on growth. And that would take your ego out of the equation. And that would allow you to worry less about proving yourself and more about improving yourself, which should be a net positive. But their experiment proved me wrong. They showed that assigning people the goal of learning was not the best way to fuel their growth. It was actually better to tell them, intentionally make yourself uncomfortable. Why? Because when you have a goal of learning, you can do that in incremental bite-sized steps. And you might go a little bit outside of the realm of what you're good at, but not too far. Whereas when your goal is to become uncomfortable, um, you will take on a major stretch. Um, you will go far outside of your strengths. Um, you'll take on something that you think is a major area of weakness. And ultimately, that puts you in a situation where you have more room for growth. Uh, so I think that seeking discomfort is something we should all explicitly and deliberately do. And sometimes I even do it by showing up for conversations I feel unqualified for. Like, what am I doing on the screenwriting life? Like, I've never written a screenplay. <laughs> I don't belong here. Oh, my God, you so do. This book is so for sure. You were talking right to me, and I feel like every other writer and probably a lot of creatives, when I was, I loved the chapter on discomfort, and I was so uncomfortable It's experiencing, like I was listening to the book on audio. I, it made me so uncomfortable because as I'm listening to you, I'm evaluating how I do and don't do those things, right? So I'm listening and I'm taking it all in, but I'm like, do I do that? How am I not doing that? Why am I afraid of that? Specifically, when you were talking about uh, uh, getting uh, advice versus feedback, you were talking about that woman. I forget her name, of course, because I didn't write it down because I'm amazing at taking notes, apparently. But uh, the, the human sponge, right? How when and then when you were talking about being on the TED Talk, when you're asking about feedback versus getting advice, and I teach classes and I know I could be doing a better job because everybody can always be offering more and doing better. And I thought, I've never asked for advice or feedback from my students because it terrifies me because then I'm going to have to take it in, have feelings about it, separate my feelings, and then actually figure out how to do those things, right? Make myself even more uncomfortable. And that feels like the quote, right thing to do but it terrifies me. And I'm like, oh my God, am I supposed to do that? Do I have to do that? Can I just be good enough at what I'm doing, right? So <laughs> I was so uncomfortable because I made everything about me. And so I had to stop and be like, okay, how can I make this about my students' experience, right? So I, I had to go through this whole process of how I would take it outside of me and, and actually like, I'm a teacher, I'm providing something. Um, in the same way, in my writing, right? How do I take it outside of me and get about the reader's experience or my character's experience, right? In the story. And it, it, I haven't quite figured out what I, what my point is, but I just found it so interesting that in the chapter about discomfort, I was so uncomfortable <laughs> and I didn't hate it. Right. Cause it still felt very cerebral, but then afterwards I was like, Oh, I have to, I have to have emotions. Right. That's the scary part for me. Always like having feelings. But I, 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 I find that fascinating, Lorian, on several yeah. levels. I feel like um, you need to play Riley a little bit more often then. <laughs> um, I'm like, okay, this is fear. 
This is fear. It's, yeah, it's in Inside Out. Yeah. I know you worked on that film. Yeah. I know you internalize the lessons from writing and explaining them, but I didn't sometimes write it. it's hard to put them into practice. Just to be clear, Meg wrote it. I didn't write it. I was I helped make the movie, but I, I didn't write it. Yeah. Fair. Still, I think that uh, it's it's a lot easier to <laughs> to communicate an idea than to live it. And I think part of what's interesting there is I actually think there's another kind of fear that you're overlooking, which is, yeah. It's scary to have people tell you what you suck at um, and to give you their honest reactions. You know what I find scarier, though? Knowing that they're having those thoughts and I'm oblivious to them. Yeah. Like, I, I find that terrifying. <laughs> like, I, the, the fact that there are students not liking what I'm doing in class and I would be in the dark about that. Mm. And that means I'm going to continue making the same mistakes and my growth is going to be stunted. Like that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm you know, also if, terrified. If I'm going to panic that. about something. It'll be that. I'm terrified of that, which is why when you write a script in the studios moving on, I'm like, but give me the notes so that I can learn. Tell me why you're like, what's happened? Like, but they never do. And I find it frustrating because it's like, oh my God, I'll never know what those conversations were behind closed doors. I love in the book you say, if you want to get it right, it has to feel wrong. It's one of my best lessons from my diving coach, Eric Best. Like I, I would, he would give me a tip and because, uh, because it was, you know, in diving, it was scary in a different way. Like I'm going to get lost in midair, which is extremely disorienting. And then I'm going to belly smack or backflop, which hurts like hell when you're, you're high up and spinning fast. I'm like, I don't want to do that. So what do I do? I make a little change. And that's also good for my perfectionism because that way, you know, I'm not going to give up the gains I've made. I'm just going to make an incremental adjustment. And systematically, like most people, I was undercorrecting. And he, Eric would just say to me over and over again, make it feel wrong. Adam, make it feel wrong. If you want to get it right, it has to feel wrong because what you're used to isn't where you want to be. And so it's got to feel unfamiliar and foreign and even incorrect in order to make progress. And Lorian, it sounds like um, maybe a make it feel wrong step for you is to, you could, you, I wonder if you could seek some targeted advice. So it, it, you know, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit too much for, I think, especially I should say disclaimer, there's a huge analysis of um, gender bias and teaching that just came out. I was reading it this morning and um, women get harsher evaluations than men consistently. Um, and I probably don't need to tell any of you that, but it was stark in the data. It's, it's one of the clearest areas, um, even where there were researchers who disagree and some think gender bias is overstated. And they came together for an adversarial collaboration. Um, when it comes to teaching ratings, it's not. Women are judged against a, a higher standard and face all kinds of double binds. So especially with that backdrop, I would say I wonder if... Like if there's a specific thing you want to get better at as a teacher, if you could ask your students for advice or ideas about how to solve that particular problem, um, and would that be a you know sort of a yeah. a targeted and maybe um, I don't know maybe manageable way to do it? Yeah, I agree. What do you I think? think? That feels less scary, right? Like that's the difference you're talking about, just like feedback versus like I need advice about this specific thing. We talk about that with. We talk to writers like ask a specific question when you're getting feedback from somebody. Is this moment earned? Do you believe this character when they say this? Right. So it's more specific. I think that's really applicable to the writing process. Absolutely. And it goes. I to like that. And then. 
Go ahead. Sorry, I, Meg, I, want, I wanted to ask you also, when a studio says no notes, this is like, a. I mean, we see this all the time with job applicants too. Like, I, you didn't get the job. What, Why? what feedback do you have? Sorry. Right. No, <laughs> no, nothing. How, how do they justify not giving you their notes? Because in a job interview, you don't want to get sued. It's the same. I, I mean, that. in essence, when you're writing drafts on a job, if they are moving on to another writer or they're tabling the project because they just figured out after your draft, oh, this is really expensive or, oh, a competitive project just came in with a huge director, so we're going to can you. There's millions of reasons that they're going to move on from you as a writer. And first of all, if you don't have a great agent, you don't even find out why they moved on because you don't. they never tell you. Um, the, the even they ghost you now. They just yeah. never. They just, you just never, never hear ever, back from them. You never hear back from them, and you're like, I guess I'm not on this project anymore. Yep. So it's a reason. It's in essence, you didn't get the job, meaning you didn't get to go forward for whatever reason. And I'm always like, but what? What do you think about the draft? And and I think that they. I would. I do think writing's a little bit different than some things in the book, only in that you do have to give them a story that gets them excited and keeps them on the project and keeps you on the project. There is a there is a bar you have to hit. But I guess it's the same in a job interview. You're trying to hit a bar. Um, so it's the same. Yeah. So what it, what would happen if you said to them, like, I, w- I wonder how much the framing matters here. So, you know, p- putting on my advice seeking hat. Uh, hey, like, I, I know you passed on this script. Uh, I, I think you spent enough time with me and my work to have some really useful things to teach me. If you were to just give me one piece of advice moving forward as I think about my next projects, what would that be? I think that's would that the, I elicit think, a different response. I think you would have to probably take them out for a drink. Yes. <laughs> I think in their <laughs> office with tons, tons of stuff to do, and they don't want to insult you because they might come back. Just because this project didn't work out doesn't mean they're not coming back later for but another that's project. Like an off and, the record. Yeah, let's, off the record. Kinda. Maybe hang out a little bit, you know. Okay, I understand now that this this is a layer of discomfort of deciding, like, do I actually want to hang out with a studio person? <laughs> no, no, I <laughs> no, like no, them. No, no. I like them. I like them. But I also love what you talk about in the book about being a human sponge. Mm-hmm. Um, again, please, everybody read it and listen to it because even the description of what sponges are is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're talking about to fuel growth over ego. And I really was blown away by... You're doing it for proactive reasons, but for your ego, or you're doing it for re- you're reactive mm-hmm. and no ego. You you had this wonderful kind of chart, and I don't know if I can ask you right now to do it, but I just thought it was ego versus or growth, and reactive versus proactive. Yes. Yeah, well put. That's uh, it's it's one of my favorite two by twos, um, and I draw a lot of two by twos because I'm an organizational psychologist, and that's about as creative as we get, but. I like I like I like it as a way of organizing. Okay, most people think it's enough to just say, okay, I'm gonna be, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to put my growth first, and I'll do the things that make me uncomfortable, um, e- you know, even if they might be embarrassing or make me feel incompetent because they're gonna make me better. What they I think overlook is that there's a huge difference between doing that reactively and proactively, um, and a lot of people do it reactively. So you know, when when feedback comes in, they try to take it to heart. Um, not realizing that seeking it is a skill and that people who actively ask for information about how they can improve get better faster than people who don't. Also not realizing that filtering is a skill. Like how many times have you gotten you know, criticism and just internalize it right away as opposed to saying, huh, not all critics are thinking critically. Not all of them are thinking um, clearly, not all of them are speaking constructively. 
and failed to ask the question of, is this person a credible source of feedback? Uh, meaning, do they have relevant expertise? And also, do they know me at all? And also, what are this person's intentions? Are they trying to help me? And if the answer to any of those questions is no, you probably want to discount the reactions you've gotten. Really, everybody listen to that for getting notes. Really, really listen to what he said. Expertise, the credibility, their intention, really their intention, right? So, so important when getting notes, be that from friends or who or pros. The other topic I'd love to get to, because we talk about it a lot on this show, and I think you have such great insights into it, is perfectionism. Um, ding, ding, ding. Why is it so dangerous to productivity and potential? Uh, the research on perfectionism is kind of the story of my life <laughs> in many ways. I read it and I was like, check, check, <laughs> check. Oh, That's this funny. is all describing me. That's so. how I... Laurie, and I know yeah. how you feel when you were talking about discomfort earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when I took my hidden potential quiz, um, I had just finished writing the chapter about perfectionism. And, you know, I was like very excited to have overcome it. It was my biggest weakness in the quiz. And it turns out I am very much still in recovery. <laughs> so, oops. Uh, I've gotten better, um, but I'm not as perfect at overcoming impact. I'm not as perfect at being imperfect as I would like. Um I think the, the problems with perfectionism, um, if you want to just, just boil them down, uh, one is that you don't end up taking enough risks because you might fail. Um, and that would be at odds with being flawless. Two is you ruminate a lot and beat yourself up about the mistakes you've made. Um, and you spend too much time shaming your past self and too little time educating your future self. And then three is you lose the forest and the trees, um, and you tend to focus on small details that don't matter, um, as opposed to the big picture. And all of that led me to think, all right, if perfectionism is medicine, it, it would have to have a warning label on it. It would say, warning may cause stunted growth. I love that. And I love that we do in the details. I think we, we, we talk to so many writers who are still in act one. Yes. Because they're down in the details of act one. And we're like, no, no, no. Oh, you two. don't even know Act One until you get to yeah. three. You got to just go. So to yeah. me, that was uh, really rang true for writing. Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. Well, I was really no. I actually can I can I react? Yeah, to that of course, for a of course. Um, did I always think of Vonnegut on this one? Um, Vonnegut wrote this, or sorry, Vonnegut introduced this great distinction between swoopers and bashers that I think about all the time. Um, he talked about bashers being people who go sentence by sentence, like trying to perfect and, you know, edit as they write. And Swoopers is doing the opposite. Like draft is all ideation. There's no evaluation and refinement. You produce the draft before you edit it. Um, I think the first model, the bashing is insane. Like no one should ever edit as they create <laughs> because they require opposite mindsets. <laughs> Idea generation is open and curious and flexible. And idea refinement is critical and evaluative and judgmental. And I think that what happens is if you bash, like if you get stuck in act one, um, or for me, it's like stuck in the, like the preface or the first chapter, um, then perfectionism takes over and you, you constrain your creativity and you also end up just really quickly thinking that your work is shit <laughs> because it's not as good as you want it to be. And if you can just draft first and then bring in your editing brain later, it's just as efficient, but it's much more effective. Absolutely. I, I think that speaks to process too. Years ago, I saw you speak and you were talking about, you know, 
people who who are procrastinators, right? I don't remember which book it was. I'm sorry, but I asked you a question about it and it occurred to me that I wasn't broken, which I really thank you for. That Oh wait, I can't, I, I'm sorry, Lorian. I can't I can't confirm that you're not broken in general, but maybe <laughs> in wasn't... this way you're not. Okay. True. We can talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that kind of psychologist. Sorry. I am a procrastinator. And that that particular thing didn't mean I was broken. Or maybe it does. I don't know. To your point. But no. but it No, it doesn't. But it's human. But uh right that it's human and that I can manage it or I can learn more about it and about my process. And what you said about being in recovery, about being a perfectionist, that we are not necessarily going to, or are we? I don't know. I'm so curious. Can we be cured of perfectionism or procrastination? Or can we, or are we managing it, learning more, challenging ourselves? Uh, I'm I'm really curious about that. Me too. That's, it's such an interesting question. I think, I mean, I'm going to think out loud on this one. I think in part because, you know, there are biogenetic influences on all these tendencies. Um, if you look at the, the behavioral genetics of personality is one of my favorite topics, and um, it's really underappreciated. Like na Nature really matters in terms of what our default instincts are um, in ways that we often don't understand until we have a second child. <laughs> like everyone oh, who believed so in it was all nurture. Okay, I only have one. one. Yeah. I'm only having one. So I guess you guys will have to fill me in on this one. Yeah, well. You don't have to learn it. Um, but I think that, that that's a factor. And then also the undercorrecting is a factor. And if you put those two things together, we change relative to our own tendency and baseline, right? So if like, I, you know, Lorian, I'm a procrastinator by habit. Like I tend to finish things weeks or months in advance in a lot of cases, you're probably not going to become like me. Um, and I'm also not going to end up on your end of the spectrum, but we can, we can change, you know, incrementally. Um, but the question is, would you want to? Like we, I think we both, according to the data that Jihei Shin and I gathered, we both suffer on creativity compared to people who are moderate procrastinators. Um, and your your risk factor is that you you wait too long and you have to scramble with your easiest idea. Mine is that I plunge in too soon and I rush in with my my first idea instead of waiting for my best idea. And so I guess the question is, can we learn a little bit from each other? And um, can you can you start earlier? Um, and can I finish later? <laughs> I guess is the question. Which is what I mean by managing it. So right, I had a yeah. I have a deadline. I have pages due today, and I've worked very hard. Wait, be... then why are you here? Well, because I've been working hard in managing my time <laughs> in terms of I started last week, right? Yes. Before I even signed the contract, I was already thinking about it, and then I started to take notes. And yes, the bulk of the refinement will happen when I get off this call. Be, but, you know, that pressure helps me a little bit, but I have not waited to start until today, which is how I'm trying to manage it. I also have other pages due tomorrow, so that's a whole other problem. But um, but I think I, that sometimes um, procrastination, what you can learn about it is, and Adam, tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm open to discomfort right now, um, is that I procrastinate because it, I think, unconsciously allows me to say, well, I didn't have time. And I don't have to really get in there and see what doesn't work. And I don't have to go through some of the hard part of doing it on time. Does that, I don't, I, I really feel like there's a deeper avoidance that is unconscious. I don't think I would consciously say that about anything I'm creating, but I wonder if that's what I'm really doing. 
there's a lot of controversy about this um, in the research, but there are some psychologists who believe, and I think there's some evidence to suggest that procrastination is a coping mechanism for dealing with perfectionism. Uh, and I've, I've done it. I mean, I, I procrastinate on things that are important to me um, and where I think the stakes are extremely high and they're going to they're gonna take a long time. But if, if there's something that I know needs to get done pretty well, but I have a bad habit of obsessing over it, I will, I will end up putting it off, sort of knowing that the constraint is going to just focus me on what's important. Um, and you know, not not lead to that trap. So I think I'm guilty of what you're describing. It sounds like you might be too. So let's test the hypothesis. So are you? Where do you fall on the procrastination spectrum? And are, how much of a perfectionist are you? Well, I'm both all of those things, and I procrastinate <laughs> so because I'm motivated by panic. Uh, that gets me going, and I just don't worry that it's bad anymore. Because so it really is connected to me, for me personally, to perfectionism. If I'm too early. I start to get really get so over into my head of expectation and the perfection, it's not right. And then I just go down a swirling drain versus I don't have time. Who cares? Just write it because it doesn't matter because it's due. So just do it. And then suddenly, oddly, it is creative because I've pushed that judge us doesn't have he, they can't judge today. So I really do think it's a very, very interesting. It's a harder way to live. And I need to look into it like how do, how how do people start to take steps to uh, deal with their perfectionism before we get into that which i am desperate to hear about can we define perfectionism because i don't think i am perfect or have ever been perfect or will ever be perfect but then i have the symptoms of all perfectionism kind of stuff right overcompensating that are all my coping mechanisms but like what is perfectionism? Oh, good question. So uh, my, my favorite definition in psychology is um, it's the desire to be flawless. Uh, so your goal is zero defects, zero mistakes, zero failures. Uh, you want everything to be just right. But then there are actually different, um, there are different bases of perfectionism. So <clears throat> psychologists distinguish between um, self-oriented and other-oriented perfectionism. Uh, so I want to meet uh, my own impossibly high standards versus I want to project an image to others that I'm flawless. And the latter is unhealthier than the former, it seems. Ah, interesting. I, I, and how do people take steps if they are feeling either version of those? What what are some of the ste steps about perfectionism? You're asking the wrong person, Meg. Ah, come on. You I don't know. You You're in recovery. You said. I'll quote you back from your book. I, Lorian made the joke about, you t You know, help me know that I wasn't broken. And you said, I can't tell you that you're not broken. And I, what I love about that is the discussion in the book about Wabi Sabi and that you strive for excellence knowing and almost wanting to there to be imperfection uh, in your work. And then the other thing that went with that that blew my mind was good enough. I was like, what? What, <laughs> what does that mean, good enough? So I'd love you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, there are so many things that could be said about this. I'm trying to think of what's useful. I guess, okay, the first thing I would say is <clears throat> what wabi-sabi is, you know, is the idea of um, seeing the beauty and imperfection. And I hear this from Hollywood friends all the time. Like they'll they'll point out some flaws in a film, and say, and 
that's what made it perfect. Like they didn't resolve everything or that I didn't quite buy that, you know, that, that particular character arc. Um, but it was a masterpiece in part because I, like that, that I know that humans made this. I yes. feel like that's become a big, I do think it's going to be the, the way it's going to go in the future because it's how you're going to know it's not AI. This wabi sabi. If you train a, you know, a generative AI. Now let me live um, in my fantasy land. I, I don't know if you, if you put the imperfections in the the large language models, they're probably going to reproduce. Stop them. giving no. them hints. Stop no, it. Stop teaching them. <laughs> they're not listening. They <laughs> no. don't know how to ingest See, podcast audio. Seeing the yet, seeing the beauty, exactly. Seeing the beauty and imperfection, and to go look at some art. Just just put in your Google wabi sabi and look at the incredible, beautiful art um, that comes from this concept. And can you talk a little bit about good enough, just for my brain? Yeah, well, so for for me, what that means is I, I took this right out of my diving days. So I, I had a, <laughs> I guess this was sort of a blessing and a curse, but it became more of a curse that at the end of practice every day, uh, my coach Eric would say, like, good practice, you know, we're done. And I'd say one more, one more, one more, because I, I hadn't gotten it perfect yet. And the way that he solved that was to say, let's figure out what's good enough on each dive based on your current capabilities. So if I'm doing a front dive pike, we're aiming for a seven. And as soon as I hit a seven, we're moving on instead of doing 17 more. Um, you know, when I was learning more difficult dives, like I remember um, learning uh, how to do a double twisting one and a half where I would do a flip, um, two, three, sixty turns, and then dive in head first. Um, you know, there we were, <clears throat> we were pretty happy when I did it for fives. And that was a good enough. And I think this idea of calibrating to say, you know, there's certain things you do that need a nine. Um, there are others where actually a six is, you know, is solid, either because it's not important or because you're not that good at it, uh, that, you know, you should be ready to accept that. And I think that's a skill to be able to, to say, let me, let me break down the different responsibilities I have and decide what score I'm aiming for on each and what that standard looks like. And I think that speaks to, for writers, both your life, like you, you're not going to be a 10 in everything in terms of, you know, yes, you better, you know, try to get a high score for parenting. Let's just start there. We can't help it. We're going to start there. Um, but, you know, there's, you have to let some things just be okay and good enough. And then in terms of writing, you know, Michael Arndt, who's going to come on the show again, he talks all the time about, I just do a draft, one draft, this is, draft is just for this. Like, it's a way of scoring, right? Like, he's not trying to do everything in a draft because that's not possible. He's just He does a draft for dialogue. He'll do a draft for action. He'll do a draft for character, uh, you know, subtext. He'll do a draft. And that's like, to me, that's the version of scoring uh, or what's good enough in terms of writing. Like, it's you can't do it all in one go. No, you can't. And it, I've never heard it described that way before, but that's exactly what I do. Like my first draft is always for content as a writer. And then the second draft, I'm starting to work on structure. And actually my wife, who's my most challenging source of developmental feedback, like Allison will read something and just say, like, not good. <laughs> this is like, this is boring. I, I remember her telling me once and she has really high standards. And I know that Whenever I, I get her input, it's going to push me to do something better. And of course, she does it out of love. But I think one time I was like, well, what's wrong with this? And she said, well, it's choppy. I was like, oh, I didn't explain that I hadn't gotten to the structure draft yet, that I just wanted to know, you know, are the ideas interesting? And, you know, does is the argument compelling? She's like, well, I can't tell because the structure is not there. I'm like, oh, 
I need to have you read after I do the uh-huh, structure check. Uh-huh. Or I need to tell you tell and then you. you can help me solve the structure. And I think we don't do that enough. I think like, so often there's a curse of knowledge where you're, you're, you're crystal clear on what you're aiming for in a particular draft. And if you don't give that expectation to your audience, you're going to get a bunch of reviews and notes that are not helpful to you. This is so good for giving it to friends. I will say when you're giving it to pros, um, my manager was just warning me about this because he was like, first of all, there's a lot of producers on this. And uh, though they want to be part of the process as if it's Pixar, where I, we're literally giving them something said, okay, this is for character. This is for the character creating the structure. Th- this, 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 we're not doing that in this document. This is just the big picture movement and who they are, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, I don't know if they can do it. And because we don't know them well enough, like you just, you don't know if they can do that or not when you're a pro. Um, and so it's a little bit of a risk. Um, I always have people that I know I can do that with, that I can, that they do understand that and have the ability to only, like you said, your wife was like, I ha- need the structure to know what you're talking about. Sometimes there's certain stages or certain people that you can do that with or not do that with. But I think it's a beautiful way always be to communicating if there's something specific that you're looking for in the draft. I, I think the distinction you're making is critical, Megan. I think um, what it makes me think about is that you have to ask when I, when I'm giving a draft to someone, is it purely developmental or is there also an evaluative component? And the more evaluative, evaluative it is, the more I, ideally the draft is further along, but also the more you have to expect that they're going to be judging it, not just trying to help improve it. Right. Can you talk a little bit in your writing process about you know what you start with, what you think you're going to say, and is it different from what you've actually said at the end? Like, is there a or do you have a clear like you've outlined it, you've researched it, and you're doing it? It's it's always a mix of the two. So when I write, I I start with the evidence that I want to capture, and then what happens is I'm usually in story hunting mode, which is to me the second most frustrating part of writing because I don't know how and when I'm going to solve it. And as a nonfiction writer, I'm like, I, I can't just make it up. I have to go and find the, I, like, sometimes I have the worst is when I have the arc in my head already. And I know like, here's the kind of story that would bring this study to life, but I don't know where that person is or where that group is. And that, that I find just exasperating sometimes. But then sometimes when I find them, it makes me think of other research that I didn't realize was relevant to the chapter. And then the chapter takes a left turn and becomes much more interesting than I, th- I thought it would you're, be. You're describing um, actually, screenwriting. Same thing. Exactly. Really? Same thing. It, this yeah. is That's creative exactly. writing too. Looking for the story. I need this. Does it work? Shit. Now I got to go over there and explore that. And, oh, In my oh, outline, I wanted her to do yeah. this right here, but it's not working. Same. But if I just let it go and let her walk in the woods, suddenly something more interesting happens. But it's when you are, and you talk about this in the book, when you want everything to be just right, you freeze progress. Because you're that's not so well put. That's yes. out of your book. It's a quote from you. No wonder I liked it. <laughs> I wrote so much <laughs> down. I have quotes all over, you know, because you're freezing the progress. You're not learning like you were talking about diving harder dives or details. You're not learning the story. You're not letting the story go. Um, I just thought that was so relevant. to. Yeah, I, I that happens all the time. I think the the, the other thing that's kind of interesting is. Like that that's at the level of, you know, an idea or a chapter. The other thing that happens is probably with more, I see this more with books than, you know, other things I write, like op-eds and podcast episodes. But um, in a book in particular, 
it's usually not until near the end that I realize there's a chapter missing. Uh, sometimes there's an elephant in the room. I'm like, you can't, you, like you couldn't write a book about, um, this happened actually with Think Again, wrote this whole book about rethinking your own opinions and opening other people's minds and building schools and workplaces where you know people could question the way we've always done it. I literally thought the book was done. And um, an amazing editor, Grace Rubenstein, said to me, what about the chapter about rethinking your life? And by the way, like COVID had just happened <laughs> and people were rethinking their careers and where they worked. And some people were rethinking their romantic relationships in both directions. And I was like, wow, this is the most fundamental chapter of the book. And I didn't know it needed to exist until I wrote the rest and saw what was absent. And that, that's a frequent occurrence for me. Is it? Is that also a parallel in screenwriting? Absolutely. Life? You have to write it to see what's absent. And somebody walks up and goes, I think you've got the wrong main character, right? Or your pilot is really research and starting. It's not the show. You have to actually write the show now. Like that happens. It's constant. It's constant. I know we have a hard out with you. So I really want to get to play and scaffolding in terms of the how play is so important to overcoming obstacles. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because it's so important in writing. It's so, so, so important in writing. Yeah, let me let me give an example from writing for me that I should have written about, but it didn't happen until too late in the book. So my least favorite part of writing, I think I mentioned story hunting is my second least favorite. My least favorite is editing. I hate editing more than pretty much anything else I do because it just, there's no creative joy in it for me. I've already, I know the research I'm covering. I know the story I'm telling. I've, you know, the, the, all the insight has already happened. And I feel like, I feel like a football team that's on the one yard line and I'm going to put like the same effort that it took me to get all the way across the field into this last yard and I don't care about it, but I know it matters for the reader. And so there's this this deep tension between this is a complete waste of my time for me, but yet immensely beneficial to the audience and therefore it matters to me. So what do I do? And for a long time, what I've done is I basically, it's been my procrastinogenic task to borrow a a term from Fuchsia Sirwa, who's a psychologist um, and expert on procrastination. She said, some tasks are just procrastinogenic. I'm like, ooh, so it's the task's fault. I'm not taking Perfect. any responsibility for I this. I love it. No, no, it's a misfit between the task and what I find motivating. Um, so, but, but knowing that, knowing that I put off editing, what am I going to do about it? that? For a long time, I tried the, like, I'll, you know, shorten the window and try to like, get it done faster. Um, I'll enlist other people in the process. I'll reward myself. If I finish, I'll do the edit first thing. And then if I finish it, um, you know, I can go and do something fun or exciting. And uh, some of those things helped on the margin. They did not change the, the emotional experience of hating the task that I needed to pour myself into. And then something really interesting happened, which is I wrote this chapter on deliberate play. And I explained all this evidence that I'd been reading for years, but never fully internalized that you don't want to just push yourself to practice because it's easy to burn out. And even before that, you bore out because you're just like the task makes you feel numb. It's deadening. 
uh, and people who who push themselves through the daily grind um, end up less successful than those who turn the daily grind into a source of daily joy. I'm like, and I'm confronting the hypocrisy of I've got to edit the chapter about deliberate play, and it's sucking the life out of me. Sorry, that's amazing. <laughs> so what do I do with that? What I do with that is, um, you know, mostly lament my inability to practice what I teach for a long time. And then like too late in the process, I realize, oh, here's what I can do. Deliberate play is about still, you know, doing a task and building a skill. So you're learning something, you're improving, but you're also doing it in a way that's fun. And the easiest way to do that is to bring novelty and variety into your routine. How can I do that as an editor? I can edit in different voices. I literally sat down and rewrote a paragraph trying to do it in the voice of Maya Angelou. Oh my God, great. Did you record that? It was not great. Did... It was the, it was the <laughs> probably the most awful writing I've ever produced. No one will ever see idea. it. It was fun though. It, it was a fun challenge. And then why Maya Angelou? Well, a lot of my editing is about taking my instinct to be cognitive and abstract and trying to infuse emotion and vividness and concreteness into my, um, into my, my prose. So, well, who else do I admire for that? Let me write a, a sentence like John Green would deliver this. Let me do one in Maggie Smith's voice. And then I realized we have ChatGPT and Claude. I can actually give it the paragraph and compare what I came up with to the AI's version of it. And then I, I felt like I had, like I, I could tell whether I got a three or an eight. And the comparison was interesting. I do not like editing still, but I dislike it less than I did before. Oh, great. That was a really long answer. No, I loved it. My my mind reels. I'm I'm trying to process this in terms of like what it means for voice, in terms of editing for your voice and like writing in others' voices and how when we talk about writing, you know, we read all these other screenplays and we we know we can identify their voices and then we try to emulate that until we can find our own and then trusting it. And and it's just such a painful process for writers to write really. And I have a I have a problem with that process. I, I I don't think anybody should have one voice. I think you need different voices for different characters and different plots, um, and different genres. And so often I feel like my my biggest enemy is that I'm trying to write everything in the same voice, and then it starts to feel formulaic. Mm. Um, my mom actually, she's um, an English teacher. Um, by by a trade once upon a time and she when she read the draft she was like every chapter starts with a story and then there's a surprise twist and then there's a study that unpacks it like, you need to mix things up it's too predictable well guess what that's my voice that's how i like to explain things it's how i like to learn things it's how i like to teach things and the best thing i could do for this book is to abandon that voice and say all right let me let me start one of these chapters with a study um, let me start another with a personal anecdote. Um, and I know that's better for the reader, but it, it feels like I'm abandoning my voice um, in service of maintaining engagement. It's so interesting, though, because you do have a voice as a writer. You do. You do. And it is consistent across books, even though maybe the style is changing or the format, the, the, the delivery. Format, but you're, you're energetic. It's very, it's very personal and intimate and yet knowledgeable. Just the way you write, 
You do have a voice. I even quoted you and you recognized it. (laughs) I didn't. I just liked it. (laughs) I was like, ooh, short declarative sentence with memorable words. That's that's my thing. It's beautiful. It's my jam. Uh, We're going to ask you three more questions. And I just want to say to our listeners, there's so many other amazing topics in this about getting stuck and what to do when you're stuck and the shoulds versus the wants. And, and bore I mean, out com- versus burnout. And compass versus map. I mean, there's so many amazing things just in this one book. And there's um, other books to go to look at too. But we're going to ask you now um, our last three questions, which we ask every uh, guest. So I'll start, which is what brings you the most joy when it comes to your work? Ooh, that's a good question. There's so many things. It's hard to pick one. It's like choosing a favorite child, Meg. How could you do this? No, to me? you just have and, to. But, Sorry. And and you have to choose the middle child because they always get neglected. <laughs> I am but a middle child, so thank you for that. Anytime. Uh you were a footnote in a previous book. So <laughs> trying to elevate. Uh let's see. I think I don't know. I think the most well, can I differentiate between um can I differentiate between joy and pride? Absolutely. For me, the most joy is like the the aha moment when I realize what a book or a chapter is about. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a big idea. Sometimes it's a, oh, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, but that, that Eureka just, it feels like I've, I've grown in that moment. And that I think is intoxicating. I think though, what, what I feel proudest of is when it, it, it's not quite as, it's not as exuberant, but it lasts longer is the satisfaction of i guess it's 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 what's most gratifying ultimately brings me the most lasting joy yeah i, w- I want to say this differently okay so there <laughs> there are two kinds of joy that i get from my work and one is the like the euphoric high of i just figured out what the book is about or what i'm trying to say in this chapter and that that is kind of peak experience in the moment but it's fleeting and usually it's I wake up the next morning. I'm like, well, what have I done today? Nothing. All right. Um, the <laughs> lasting joy is, I think, in the gratification of uh, producing a book that was the best I could create at that time in my life on this topic, that somebody reached out and said, this mattered to me. Um, I learned something about myself. I made a choice that I wouldn't have made. I helped somebody else. Um, I think... Yeah, I guess discovery is my immediate rush of joy and impact is where I get lasting joy and also meaning. Amazing. Amazing. All right, I'm going to bring it down a little with this next question, which is uh, what pisses you off about your work? (laughs) Besides editing and story finding? Also, I do love that in the... Never mind. Go ahead. No, tell me. Oh, well, we won't put this on the show, but I love that you edited your answer. Oh, you can put that on the show. I don't care. I mean, you... You said, I hate doing this. And then you did it beautifully. Well, like I you... <laughs> I don't mind verbal editing because oh, okay. in that moment, I feel like there's a beneficiary. Maybe maybe that's part of what's missing. You know, I should learn lessons from my own research. My, my first experiments in grad school showed that people worked harder, smarter, and more effectively when they met the person who was ultimately going to benefit from their work. And if I had, if I had a reader sitting next to me or in the Google Doc as I wrote... I would be much more into the meaning of editing. The, I would see the purpose more clearly. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I'm going to try this experiment next. Okay. Thank you for that. Great, that's great. 
That's a little nugget I was not prepared for. I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> you you set that up perfectly. Um, what pisses me off? What pisses me off? Um, I don't know. I I don't like. I, I don't get mad very often. I I get frustrated when I have a goal that I'm blocked from achieving. Um, I I get pissed off when. I feel like people critique things in bad faith. So there was a review of Hidden Potential where I thought it was a lovely review, but there was something that was factually incorrect. Like the the reviewer missed a, a sentence that changed the meaning of everything. And I was pissed off. And then I was like, well, why am I pissed off? I feel like I'm being misunderstood. But there's... Uh, no review is going to be uncritical. <laughs> you you look like a Pollyanna as a reviewer if you just rave about a book or, or any project. So why does it bother me that the criticism was inaccurate as opposed to accurate? Because I feel misrepresented. And also, I think the reader might you know take away the wrong lesson. But who remembers the content of the reviews they read? Eh. Okay, it also bothers me because I didn't learn anything from the review. Uh-huh. And I thought, like, the, for me, the definition of a good critique is I, as the writer, I'm going to get better from it. And I cannot tell you how many times like, the next book has benefited from one of the toughest reviews. So I'm pissed off because this reviewer did me a disservice. You jerk. <laughs> like, how could you get that wrong? You could have said something else that I could have actually benefited from. So guess what I did to not be pissed off? I emailed the reviewer. And said, uh, I appreciated your review. I thought, you know, the following was, you know, thoughtful, balanced, etc. I was confused by this because I actually said this. And the person came back and said, I'm sorry, I owe you a drink. And then I said, what else can I do better? And I got better suggestions. And so it was a good lesson for me that like, I guess when criticism pisses you off, I, if you deem the person worthy of learning from, which I did, uh, that it doesn't have to end there. And that person was worth getting drinks with, I guess, is the, the moral of this story. So good. So good. That was a really long answer. You can cut it off. No, my God. You're, I'm, 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 I'm wrapped. Yes. I'm wrapped. Yes. Um, then the last question we ask, Adam, speaking of feedback, um, if you could have a drink with your younger self, and I, I don't, when I say younger self, you've had such a full career, but... Maybe before the publication of your first book or before you dove into the exercise of writing your first book, what would you tell that Adam, knowing what you know now after having written five? How many hours do you have? <laughs> as much as, as long as you want to go, we're, we're lucky to have you. Jeff, I have a, I have a lot of comments, uh, a lot of notes. Uh, so I'm 42. I guess I started writing my first book 12 years ago. So I was, I was 30. Uh, actually, no, I was 29. It was uh, it was spring, so before I turned 30. So if I were having, if I were sitting down with my 29 year old self, what would I say? Number one, I would say don't stick to your core expertise. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stay in your lane advice that people get, and I think that that can lead people to be too narrow. Like it's similar to write what you know. Well, if you only write what you know, how do you ever grow? You don't. You don't ever find out about things that are outside of your experience. And I, I think I made that mistake, um, especially early on as a writer. Like I, I only I try to primarily write about things that 
I had my own research on. Um, I'm an organizational psychologist, so I focused my writing on the workplace. Well, I can read other people's research as well as, certainly, hopefully as well as a journalist does. Um, I can synthesize, you know, a field looking at a topic like um, generosity um, in parenting or in marriage, just like I can, you know, in a work team. So I would, I would definitely say, um, don't be so narrow. Uh, think about how the ideas that you're interested in apply to many different spheres of life um, and many different kinds of people. Uh, I think I was reluctant to take, like, to tackle gender differences, for example, because I was like, well, I've never, like, I've, I've never been a woman. Don't know what that's like. Not my place. I'm like, well, it's my job to read the research and, you know, and synthesize what we know. Uh, so that would be a big note. I think another note would be, yeah, I guess I really, um, I really struggled with the the early, like the, the beginnings of the first drafts, because it felt like there was so much pressure on them. And you know that not only is it going to get read more, but it's also going to determine whether people keep reading. And a lot of people will, will say to that, begin with the end in mind. And I think I would edit that a little bit and say, actually begin with the end. I would tell myself to write the conclusion first and work backward. Because I think in writing the conclusion, I often, in the early books, I would go back and say, oh, that's what this book is about. And now I know what the opening is supposed to do. Um, but, you know, maybe sometimes I would have had to write the whole book to get there. But I think in a lot of cases, if I just wrote the conclusion, it would help me clarify the starting point. And sometimes I actually, in one case, I took, I, I like the conclusion so much, I just took it out and brought it to the intro. Um, like, if this is That's, the most important yeah. thing to, the say, to say, don't leave it until the end. Uh, I would give myself that advice. And then I think the, the one other thing that I would say is I would say be much more thoughtful about topic choice as a writer. When I first book, it was obvious, like I'm going to write about the thing that I've been studying my whole career. Uh, Givers and takers, no brainer. After that, it's like, I'm going to write about whatever interests me. And I think that was short-sighted. Interest was not enough. Uh, Just because it was interesting to me doesn't mean it was important to other people. So I needed to draw that Venn diagram of not just, is this an idea I wake up in the morning excited about and I go to bed thinking about, and I would talk to somebody who's not even my, in my field about it because I, I just think it's, like, it's so fascinating. But also, is it important enough? If, people, you know, if I could write the definitive book on this topic, uh, would the world be a better place? Um, would people benefit tremendously? And then I needed a third circle in that Venn diagram that was not on my radar at all, which has only come on in the last couple of books, which is... Do I have something distinctive to say about this? There are a lot of topics that I think are interesting to me and important to everyone else, but I don't feel like I have novel value to add. And I, I think it's in the center of that trio. Adam, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the show. I, you know, I'm going to already ask you to come back because we have so many other things, so many other books to talk about, and you're just yeah. so inspiring. Yes, thank well, you very I'm much. Honored to be here. It means a lot that you've read my work and thought about it and talked about it and applied it to your life. And I, uh, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the the kind of writing you do is, is so much more impressive to me than my genre because you imagine worlds and characters from scratch and then turn them into stories that, despite being made up, speak to people's deepest values and and emotions and motivations and. I, I think that's a real gift. Oh, thank you. Thank well, you. we do too. It's it's hard to do. <laughs> we 
which is why we have this podcast, which is why we have this podcast, because it takes a lot of emotional weightlifting. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into The Screenwriting Life. And for more support, check out our Facebook group where both emerging writers and professionals are finding support. You can check out our Patreon as well. And please consider writing a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find the show. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing.